Folks, we are live yet again, and uh, it is a Friday. That means we're doing an Outback with Jack episode. I've got a bunch of variety for you today, and instead of going like all practical, how do we do stuff on the homestead and with our prepping, uh, or all topical, gloom and doom, I split the uh, difference. And so we're going to go through roughly our first half of the sec- this, this stuff today, the uh, first five bullet points on things that are going on. Uh, what they mean, things like uh, interest rates and uh, our insane president, et cetera. And then the uh, then there's so there's five of those. And then there's uh, seven more that are going to be things that have come in from the audience about like practical real world things, along with an update of my uh, duck pond aquatic system, which is going to be in video. And I think you guys well the whole thing's in video if you're watching the video. But there's a 10 minute video, that, which is really important for me when I'm doing these live feeds, when I throw these videos in. That gives me 10 minutes to like go to the bathroom, fill up my coffee cup, take a breath, uh, doing these, these, uh, live feeds for an hour, hour and a half, sometimes two hours alone. No guest or anything, man. That's part of why I build these breaks. And plus, I think it gives you guys more value add. So let's just go through the bullet points and talk about what we're going to hit today while we give people time to come on into the live feed. Uh, did you buy the Bitcoin dip? Again, or did you wait again for another opportunity? And I'll show you why you still have lots of opportunity. I'm going to go over Bitcoin stock, the flow model again, and I'm going to talk again real quick about this nonsense that what if they shut the grid down? The power grid, that is. Ugh. God, why? I know why. I'll tell you why. Then we'll talk about Elon Musk in his Twitter gambit. Yes, gambit is not just a word for the Queen's gambit. A, Miniseries on Netflix, which is actually quite good. A gambit is an opening move that your opponent does not expect. I'm going to talk to you today about the Elon Musk Twitter gambit and why I think that people are like, well, what's his plan B when this doesn't work? I'm going to tell you why I think his plan B is his plan A and has been all along and why I think this is nothing but basically Elon in his propensity to be a media whore and to make lots of money and how to legally do a pump and dump and not get fined by the SEC when you do it. But I'll also tell you the good coming from it. There's some amazing good coming from this, even though I don't think Elon will take over Twitter. Brandon, our illustrious president, is now shaking hands with imaginary friends or ghosts or some shit. We'll show you that if you haven't seen it yet. Uh, interest rates are going up. Interest rates are going up. I'm going to tell you why this is a very unusual time for interest rates to go up. It's the only thing the Fed can do and why it's like a poison pill. It's bad. It's really bad. You, you raise interest rates when an economy is good to, to rein in inflation due to a good economy. What do you do when you have a bad economy? You push interest rates to almost you screw yourself. And I'll tell you why this is really, really bad. Um, and I'm going to give you my last thing on COVID for a while. And what I think we as a people need to do, and it's something I've been doing quietly for over a year now. And it's, it's something that would have an immediate impact if you just would do it. And most Americans won't do it. And at a time we should be doing it by not doing it. More people are doing it instead of not doing it in the first place and involves airplanes. Some of you just figured it out. Some of you are like, huh? 
we'll get to it. Then we're going to shift gears. We're going to talk about choosing a good quality airsoft gun for training purposes and a couple sources for that. Some updates and new things going on in the duck pond system. That will be the 10-minute video that gives me a break. What you should be doing right now to deal with food supply shortages and runaway inflation, because good God, is it coming and going to get worse. Uh, a question about hydroponics to grow livestock feed for, say, pigs. Well, I think there's a limit to what that can do for you. Making up your own seed mixes for any and all needs, because I keep getting questions. Where do I get a good seed mix for? Stop looking for a good seed mix. Make your own. On seeds... Somebody wants me to talk about building up a seed bank, and I'll tell you why that the best seed bank is probably annually collected and in your ground, not in a storage vault. We have been led down this path by people that want to sell you a PVC pipe crammed full of vacuum-sealed seeds, and it's not really the way to go because seed viability declines drastically over time, no matter what you do. Yes, I know they planted date palm seeds from 2,000 years ago, and some of them germinated. I know, because I covered the story when it happened. It does not matter when you're trying to save things, especially things like uh, like allium seeds, which are your, your chives, your onions, etc. cetera. Uh, they have very short shelf lives. And some seeds last longer than others, and you can always make up for it by saving more and then planting more because your germination rate goes down. But we'll, we'll talk about it. And uh, we're going to finish up with um, why I think anarchists – have the wrong conversation with what I'm going to call status holdouts. So if you are a dyed-in-the-wool, I believe we need the state in every single way in our lives, statists, uh, I'm not having this conversation with you at all. I'm not going to waste my breath. I'm talking about the people that have moved real close to minarchism, and they just can't see. And what I'll plant a seed in you for right now is what do we call a person that can't see? What word do we use to describe a person that can't see? Anyway, let's uh, let's start out bringing in. Did you buy my Bitcoin dip? Uh, I put out a post on this, and what it said was, I know sometimes I sound like I'm being a dick here, right? I know it, I understand, but it said right now would be a good time to buy Bitcoin. That was back here when we were dropped down in like uh, the low 30s recently here. Like, uh, or mid thirties, 38,000, 37,000. I, I just happened to notice right about here how far Bitcoin had come down. And I put out a post on social media and said, this is the time when everybody asks me, should they sell their Bitcoin instead of buying Bitcoin? And they're going to wait for it to go back up. And then they're going to ask me how to buy Bitcoin, something like that. And I got a lot of good responses. A lot of people saying, Hey, thanks for the ping. I just went and bought some. But what I have on the screen right now for those watching the video is what's known as the stock to flow model. This is a predictive model that's been with us for years. Uh, it's been with us, I think, since about 2017, right around here, not quite middle, about uh, 60% through the total cycle we've had so far. And as you can see, it's incredibly accurate. The line, the, the blue line, is the predicted price of Bitcoin at any point in time according to the stock-to-flow ratio, how much there is compared to how much is being pulled out and bought and, and locked up over time. And, of course, the supply declines over time, so available to buy declines over time. Every time somebody goes in a long-term hodl mode with a Bitcoin or a piece of a Bitcoin, it's off the market in an already declining supply. Now, 
I picked this particular page for you because it is the best one to look at over time. It's the best one to study for yourself. But if you look at other graphs, you'll see around the blue line, basically like a cone, uh, upside, downside, a cone of uncertainty. And that is basically saying if it's anywhere in this cone, like when they show you a hurricane coming in, if it's anywhere in this cone, then it's, it's still meeting our prediction, basically. Right. And where I think you really would do best with this model is everything I'm about to say is true, but it's more true when it's when it goes below that band, that cone and that thirty eight thousand, thirty seven thousand level we just hit definitely pulled us out of the band. But when you look at this, the further you get off the band or further you get off the line. The more you have a delta in here, the better the buy opportunity. So the last time that we had a buy opportunity that looked anything like this does up here where we are at today and over the last few months was back here during dun 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 the crash of 2018 and 2019. Remember, Bitcoin's dead again, right? So if you, if you look at this in in this point in the band, we got down in a three to five thousand dollar range with Bitcoin for quite a while. And it came back up, and then we had this little dip below it here at about 6,000. Both of those look like pretty good buy opportunities now, don't they? And we followed stock to flow exactly as predicted right up until mid-2021, and then we fell out of connection with it again. And if you look here, which is about October of 2021, we were definitely inside that band at 58,000. Right, And that band can be on both sides of this blue line. And we fell out of it again here down in the 40s. And we keep trying to fight back toward that band. What I want you to look at is just a couple things. One, there has never been a bad time to buy Bitcoin in the history of Bitcoin. Buying it over here below the band was a good buy. Buying it right here in 2016, well above the band, looks like a horrible buy because it crashed down to here the next day. Right? But you would have been buying Bitcoin at about 15 bucks. 15 bucks. And what looks like one of the worst times to buy. Right here looks like a pretty bad time to buy because we had a fall off. You would have been buying it at $137. Here we were well above the band at $868. And just about six months later, we were all the way down to $200. Oh my God, we're dying again. But of course, by 2017, we were well above and we shot and we followed this thing, this stock to flow model. So what I'm trying to get across to you guys here is one, you don't really need to time this, but you can. And whenever you are below the stock to flow prediction, it's a buy zone. And the further you get, the more aggressive you should be buying. So I think you, you know, maybe you DCA this or whatever, and maybe when we come back onto a rally, you start paying attention and maybe you take some profits when you're well above it. Cause that's been very accurate as well. But what you have right now is a buying opportunity where there's always a buying opportunity, but now it's a bigger buying opportunity than it normally is. You have potential for greater upside. And and whenever you start worrying about your $600 worth of Bitcoin and you email me about it and I tell you to just cram it, like I don't have time to hear you whine about 600 bucks. This is not for the person that said they have some Bitcoin stuck on Coinbase, by the way. That's a different thing. I'll see what I can do for you on Monday with that.
because they just happen to have 600 bucks. But I have so many people that are all tweaked out about it. it went up, it went down, blah, 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 blah. And they only have a few hundred bucks in it. Relax. Keep buying. You don't even need to be talking about it yet. You don't treat stocks in your 401k this way. Don't treat Bitcoin this way. There was a, uh, a movie and it's pretty, uh, anti-female. This, this line in it. But I, I, I don't think it has to be about women. It has to be, it, it's really about anybody that behaves this way. And, and the movie's called Boiler Room. And they, it was a stock market scam, boiler room, telemarketing operations, selling these micro stocks, you know, before they were released and what have you, to make a bunch of money on commissions, on, on kickbacks on them. And, uh, but one of the, the senior brokers is telling one of the new brokers, never pitch the woman. Never pitch the woman, always pitch the guy. And he said, the reason you don't pitch the woman, and there's a term in there I won't use, because I won't use this derogatory term toward all women, but it's don't pitch the itch, okay? Um, he said it, it's so terrible to do this because if it goes down, they call you constantly because the stock went down. And the guy's like, well, yeah, yeah. And he said, but you don't understand. It's even worse if it goes up. Then they call you all the time when a stock goes up, Right. And I think there's a lot of people that behave that way with crypto, but nothing else that they hold in their life. They have $10,000 worth of silver in a box buried in the floor of their house in a safe, good place for it. And, and silver goes down 20%. They don't even blink. But Bitcoin goes down a dollar and they have 600 bucks worth of it and they start losing their shit. Buy and stack and buy and stack and buy and stack. That's the formula for success here. Next, I want to talk a little bit about Elon Musk. And I do have a link in the show notes for you, but I, I didn't bring it up here. I'm pushing the limits with numbers of tabs open while live streaming in the first place right now. So hopefully it won't turn around and bite us in the rear end. Um, but I want to like a lot. There's been a lot of talk about this and there's people that are like all raw, rawing Elon and they think he's like Iron Man, like in real life or something. And then there's people that like. He's part of the plan. He's, he's, he's in on it with everybody else. And, you know, he's just, he's out to get us all. I think the truth usually lies somewhere between the extremes. And Elon strikes me as a guy that on one level is doing the best that he can. And he actually is a pro free speech guy. It doesn't mean that you're, see, and this is where we blur the lines of reality and, and having our heads so far up our own ass, we can, we can smell our own neck from the inside, right? That does, when somebody's pro free speech, it doesn't mean that all their positions align with your position. It simply means that they're okay with your position being heard. And I think Elon is pro free speech, but I don't think that's what this is about. People are asking me, what's his plan B? His plan B is his plan A, in my opinion. Now, I want to be clear before I give you the plan A. I think plan B is execute the buy and actually take Twitter private and do everything that he said that he wants to do. Will it work? I don't know. But that's plan B. That's not plan A. Plan A is exactly what he's doing and what it looks like is going to happen. Come out and buy 9, 10% of the company. Um, jiggle the left and the suppressionists of free speech as much as you can and tweak them out. Say you're going to take a position on the board. Then say, yeah, you know, the way you're going to do this, I don't really think I want to be on the board, and I don't want you to prevent me from, because part of the deal with the Twitter board, being on the board and having a seat, was that he would agree for another two years not to buy any more shares of Twitter, to not increase his stake. I think he knew he was going to turn down the board seat all along. 
You turn down the board seat and you then turn around and write an official letter to the SEC. And you say, I want to, to basically do a hostile buyout of this company. Is my, I, I'm announcing my intent to take the company over and to take the company private. You document that. You put an offer in that looks like a, like there's no one that can make an argument that it doesn't look legitimate because it's at a significant premium. Now, one thing you have to understand with buyouts, buyouts are usually somewhere in the neighborhood of, of two to four X the current value of the company. That's generally when somebody comes in to take over a company. I was part of a, a, a company, for instance, named Microtest and We got bought out by a company called Fluke. That's how I ended up working for them. Our stock was trading at $3.15 a share. Fairly small company for a, a company listed on NASDAQ. And Danaher, which was the parent company of Fluke, came in and bought us out. They paid something in the range of nine bucks. So roughly 3x. And of course, when you're going to get a 3x return on your position in a company, you're like, okay. Elon's currently offering, I think, over current pricing, somewhere in the neighborhood of a 30% premium. Well, Twitter stock's going to fluctuate up and down in a 30% range all the time anyway. So these guys could see their positions rise up to and above that anyway. So I think it was a safe offer in that it was enough to look legitimate. I'm offering billions of dollars more than a company's worth on paper. But it's low enough. That the people in Twitter would, you have to understand, like people think, well, why didn't you just go out and buy 51%? Then you have a controlling interest to the company. That still only takes you so far because you still have a board of directors to contend with. But there's not 51% of the stock available. The major holders, like this guy over in Saudi Arabia, right? This Prince guy with now has 10% and says it's an undervalue. They, these key holders combine and hold more than 51%. What they do is they put together this cabal, and that way they can put the money out in the public market, but they put out maybe 40, 45%. So you, you, you eliminate the risk of just a, a, a flat out hostile takeover. Some of your people have to fold and sell. So he knows this. He knows they're not going to take it. So what did he just do? He bought stock, billions of dollars worth, pumped it up like 40%. Now he's going to sell it off when they tell him no. And he'll do it over time, and he'll drive the price down, probably short the other side as he's causing it to fall. He'll make money everywhere above the delta that he bought in at, and he'll make money on the rest with the short covered on the other side of it. And if he had done this in a straight-up rumor mill fashion, the SEC would spank Elon's ass hard till he was blistered on the ass, And they would find him more money than he'd ever make off of this. And that's the law, and that's how it works. But guess what? The way he did it, good luck with that, SEC. The man wrote a letter to the SEC, said, I'm trying to take the company over. He put it, he put in his letter to the Twitter board, if you don't take my offer, it's my last and final offer, okay? Then I have to reconsider my position as a stakeholder. This is media whore. 101 mastery, troll and media whore, Elon Musk, master of it. Huge publicity, lots of eyeballs on him, lots of discussion, and he makes a buttload of money. And 
The worst thing that happens in this plan is Twitter says, okay, and he owns Twitter. Win or win. This is how the uber rich think. They set up a position where I win or I win. And the only question is how do I win a lot or a little? But I win either way. This is, they do every stock trade this way. They collar a stock. If it goes up, they win. If it goes down, they win. The only way they lose is they break even if it doesn't move. Or they, they lose a very small pittance. They lose two, three percent of the trade if it doesn't go anywhere. And they have enough money to make damn sure it goes somewhere. It, it's just the exact same thing. The good of it. <clears throat> the left is losing their mind. And whenever the left loses their mind, I smile. We actually have people at saying that Elon Musk trying to make Twitter an actual free speech platform is what tyrants and dictators want from the Internet. Tyrants and dictators want a free and open Internet, and people for democracy, they want a tightly controlled, regulated speech environment to protect the weak from the strong who will beat them up verbally with words that will hurt them. Yeah, yeah. The left losing their mind, the left claiming that censorship is good for liberty and freedom and democracy is the golden goose egg to come out of this no matter what happens. And that's how you have to look at it. You can believe Elon Musk is for free speech, even though you think he, he is a transhumanist and wants to merge human beings with cybernetic organisms and is not your best friend. You can be that person and you can still be for free speech. You really can. You can be a dyed-in-the-wool socialist Democrat, 100% Democrat socialist Bernie Sanders type, and be for free speech. I haven't met many of them, but you can. The, the thing is, there's a seduction in censorship. When the censorship benefits a person, they become a lot more forgiving of it. That's why the right's losing their mind about censorship, and the left is defending it. All you got to do to swap that around is change what's being censored. Censor the leftist message and leave the right unfettered and watch how quick the two sides swap because neither one of them means a fucking thing that they say. And I'm not talking about everybody. I'm talking about the majority. The vast majority are full of shit. They will defend their guy with their initial after it no matter what he does. He can go out and beat baby seals to death with baby puppy clubs. You make baby puppies into clubs and beat baby seals with a nail. And they'll defend it. And then the other guy can sneeze wrong. And they'll say that's proof that he wants to kill orphans by taking away their flowers. And at least you're seeing the last vestiges of the holdout, of the pretense of the left and the leftist media to be objective in any way. They've completely put all their freaking cards on the table now. And I will thank Elon Musk for that, if nothing else. Next up, I want you guys to see this. This is our... uh This is our president of the United States, right? This is an embarrassment. This is him shaking hands with, I guess, a ghost. Here we go. And you won't hear anything if you're on the audio. I'm just playing the video. He gets done with his speech. And then he sticks his hand out like he wants to shake hands. Then he kind of saunters around looking at the wall. Then he looks over at the crowd. Then he looks at the wall again. And then he kind of walks off, head down. And you'll see it play here through again. This is, um, this is disturbing. Now, look, 
Beating up Joe Biden is easy. Okay? It really is. It's very easy to do. It's very tempting to do. I, I, I want to point something out, though, that is a lot more serious in given what we're dealing with and what's coming over the next few years while this guy's still going to be in the White House because he's not going anywhere. And uh, if you get rid of the guy, right, and this is why I think his handlers, when they picked Kamala Harris as a running mate, I thought it was the dumbest thing I ever heard in my life. I was like, she couldn't win her own state. She'll give you nothing. You, you won't win a single district because you picked her that you wouldn't have won anyway. And this is not usually what presidential candidates do. When you get your party's nomination, you tend to pick a VP that people look at, and this is what they say. If, if the guy dies or the woman dies that's in charge, this person can do the job. They need them to be that good, that they can do the job. Check that box. That's step one. Failure. Nobody thought Kamala Harris would be a good president. Nobody. Box number two. Will they bring me a state that I would probably otherwise lose? Will they help me carry a state? So Trump picking Pence was a good example of that. You had a a popular governor from a swing state, right? And so picking that guy, nobody looked at Mike Pence and said, if he's president, you know, he doesn't know how to do the job, which you would say about Kamala Harris. And, and people in his home state that were on the fence, that were in that mushy middle, Maybe he pulls them over. So you tick those two boxes. And then the third box is, I want somebody that fix the first two, but they're not a legitimate competitor to my seat on the throne. I don't want to bring the crown prince that's popular into the, into the palace where all it takes is one person saying, it's time to stab the old king in the back and bring the crown prince to the, to the throne, right? So you want somebody that's a, Pence was a good pick. Reagan's pick of Bush Sr. was a good pick. He wasn't a direct threat, but he ticked the first two boxes. Kamala gets 27 stars on the third box. Not being a threat. In fact, being a repellent to anybody wanting to take out the king and bring the crown princess in to become the queen. Nobody anywhere wants President Kamala Harris, period. And that was the plan. They knew he would look this bad. And they picked somebody that was so bad that even Republicans, if they take over the House and the Senate and have enough of a supermajority, are going to be like, ooh, yeah, do we really want to do this? But the other side of it, I'm sure he has managers and, and handlers and minders, because we know he does. But there are certain things a president can just say, we're doing this, and it's going to happen. And that little video I showed you, I don't say this with any, you know, tap dancing on the guy's head or anything. I'm not putting up the let's go Brandon uh, ticker like I usually do when I talk about him. Because I got something to say. I'm dead serious about this. I pity Joe Biden. I feel bad for Joe Biden. Not as our president. I can, I have total, complete contempt for Joe Biden as our president. As a human being, I feel terrible for the guy. Every one of us who's lived long enough and was old enough to see, to understand what we were seeing, that's dealt with a loved one going into dementia, has seen this behavior. 
We've all seen this behavior and we all know what it means when we say it. And most of us tried to, tried to convince ourselves, grandpa, dad, mom, grandma, etc. It's just, it's just a little bit of old people syndrome. They'll be fine until the day they go and, and the rest on, high on the mountain. They're going to be okay. They're not really losing their faculties. They just are forgetful here and there. We all have senior moments as we call them. But in our heart, when we saw it, we all knew. We all knew what we were looking at. We were looking at early stages of Alzheimer's and dementia. We knew it, and then we watched that person slip away. In my opinion, that's what we're looking at with the, with the President of the United States right now. And I believe that what you're seeing is a fraction of how bad it really is, because these minders, I believe, are pumping them up with you know drug cocktails. They're pumping them up with uh, blood, probably blood transfusions, high iron blood transfusions. They're, they're doing whatever they can that when they put them out there to make him look like he's halfway held together. And he will have good moments even without that. We've also all been through this. You'll say, well, it doesn't seem like there's anything wrong with him. And they might go a couple of days like that. And then they go back down into this place. And Joe Biden right now should be living at a beach house in Florida feeding ice cream to seagulls. He should not be president of the United States. And I don't say that because I disagree with his politics. I do, but that's not why I'm saying that. I'm saying that because when a man hits this point in his life and he's got plenty of money, and we all know where a lot of that came from, but we don't need to go there. When a man at this age and in this place in his life can take the last few years where he's still there and enjoy it and be surrounded by what's left of his family and and just be, he should. And his wife, in my opinion, is an abusive bitch. Because there's no way that we can see this and she can't. And she's allowed this to happen because it's good for her. This is abuse by his family, his friends, and his closest people. This is an abusive thing that was done. And it was done intentionally because now you have the deep state actually pulling all the levers of power. Because the president does not have the capacity to push back. And if the guy pushed back anywhere, as bad as it was, it was Afghanistan. I think it's the one place, like, even though the withdrawal was a disaster, at least we're out of there. And I think it's the one place he actually stood up and said, no, we have to end this. And that's not an endorsement because there was a, I already, I'm not going to do it now. We got to keep moving along with our bullet points here. I already laid out how I would have withdrawn. And when I, when I would have withdrawn would have been five years, 10 years, whenever you made me president, I would have withdrawn within six months, but there would have been nothing left for the Taliban. And what was there of the Taliban when they came running in would have been blown to smithereens on the way out the fricking door. And I would have lost nobody. And we wouldn't have brought in hundreds of thousands of people with no vetting, right? So I'm not saying what he did was good in that respect. I'm saying it's the one place I think he did say, I am the president, get it done. And I, I will give even that man credit for that. And I know some veterans that feel the same way. By the way, I am a veteran, just saying. And we know these entangled foreign wars are a nightmare. Even if you don't believe it when you're serving, It only takes a year or two once you get out to realize how used you were. All right, moving on. Interest rates are going up. And I wanted to show you this as well, uh, this little article here. Give me just a second, and we'll get it pulled up for you. This is on Kiplinger. 
Interest rates. The Fed gets aggressive. I want to kind of tell you what's going on here and then tell you why it's bad. <laughs> so the basic concept here is that the Federal Reserve is going to raise interest rates. And we should expect six more right here. Six more federal funds rate increases this year, one at each meeting. The first three should be half point increases, while the last three will be quarter point increases. So we've got one and a half here, right? And then we got another three quarter here. So we're talking about a two and a quarter rate increase. Um, now, why? Why are they doing this? Well, because this is the only thing they can do. But this is not the scenario where you do the thing that they're going to do. But they don't have another play. So what do you do when you only have one play? You make it. So let's ex let's explain for those that don't know interest rate control by the Fed and what you do with it. So when the economy's doing really shitty, people aren't spending money, people aren't hiring, people aren't expanding their businesses, all of that jazz. You cut interest rates. Now, we went so far in the tank with this, they cut interest rates to almost to, to effectively zero. Now, that interest rate, what is that number? That's the number that banks can borrow money from the Fed at, so the banks lending to themselves, or interbank lending, right? So there's two different rates there, but they're both controlled by this decision by the Fed. How much does it cost your bank? to get free money from the federal coffers, right, other than the interest on it, so they can loan it out and multiply it. And how much does it cost a bank to borrow from another bank with interbank lending? And and so you cut that, so you make money cheap, and then people say, well, like, it's a good time to do a construction loan or a good time to do a small business loan and hire two or three people, and then money starts flowing. Well, we've done this for like a decade now with interest rates at zero. And you haven't seen them come up during even good economy very much because this will also, though it's an indirect thing, affect how much interest the government has to pay on its debt, especially as debt recycles into new like five and ten year treasury notes. So we owe $30 trillion. So if the interest, think about what happens if you have a credit card and it's at like 5% interest, but you owe like a shitload of money, like a hundred grand on it, and your interest rate goes from 5% to 7%. Your, the increase in interest will make your payment do nothing, right? It's going to be painful, very painful to have a 2% increase. So while it's not a direct correlation, it causes this effect because it trickles through the whole economy. Because in the end, interest rates on loans to the government are based on how much a person will require in order to invest. But when you have inflation at 8%, which is a lie and it's worse, Why would I loan you my money for a 2% return when inflation is at 8%? I need to make 8% to stay par. So as you have this realization in inflation and the increase in interest rates coming, lenders to the government through bonds, whether they're foreign or domestic, are going to require a greater ROI in order to tie their money up for five years, 10 years, et cetera. So this causes a runaway interest payment, which is already the Second or third largest budget item that we have. The military uh, budget and the Social Security budget are our top two expense items. Number three is interest on the debt. Everything else is lower than just interest on the debt. 
awful. So when interest rates come up, it spells bankruptcy for the Fed and their balance sheet and the United States government, which is already bankrupt. So that's a problem. The other problem, though, is this is an inappropriate use of raising rates. So what you have is 70s-style stagflation. Instead of a roaring economy causing prices to go up, you have a shitty economy with prices going up. So when you pump the brakes, you can bring down the inflation, especially in things like housing, etc., because when interest rates go up, it costs more to buy a house. People buy less house. And then sellers have to bring their pricing down. So you can do that. But at the same time, you're putting a cap on economic growth underneath. Yay you. Look what you've done. You've driven us from a recession with high inflation to a depression with high inflation. Way to go, guys. Way to go. And it's the only play they have. This is the old, every, the only tool you have is a hammer. Everything looks like a nail. And they set this had to happen all the way back during the Obama administration when they drove these rates this low. And you have to ask yourself, Those of you that went to college, those of you that even took high school economics courses, why is a redneck duck farmer telling you this and you never learned it in school? Because they don't want you to know. They don't want you to know. Moving on. This is something you can do by not doing. Don't fly. Don't get on an airplane. Drive or don't go. Do it for at least six months. Do it until these stupid mask mandates on these airplanes go away. The masks don't Work. One more time for the slow kids who ain't figured this out yet. We have the data now. We have looked at states that masked people and states that didn't. The difference is diddly frickin' squat. All right? It's less than a quarter of a point, and sometimes it goes in favor of the non-mask. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. It's a wonderful fiction. It's virtue signaling. It doesn't work. And it's causing people to be thrown off airplanes. It's causing people to fight with each other. And it should be hurting the airlines to the point where the federal government goes, shit, we need to stop doing it. But you people won't stop flying. There's lines out the ass at the airports. The flights are still fully booked. I'm sorry, unless my life depends on it. And if I was employed still, and unless my job depends on it, I will not get on a fucking airplane again until this shit stops And if the people of this country that say they wanted it to happen, all did that. Yes, I know. There's still a bunch of holdouts on the left that think the mask is virtuous. Most of them are freaking broke. Those of them that do have money, they only fly so much. You make a third of airplanes have empty seats. And I know the airlines are telling the, 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 the CDC and, and the, the, the Transportation Authority and all that they want this taken away. But what you need them to do is go back to them and go, hey, you know what? We need money because you guys created a freaking recession again for the airlines. We're about to go bankrupt. We need money. That will get the attention. And that will get the airline law. Instead of the airline mouthpieces saying they want it, that'll get the airline lobbyists buying the freaking government into doing it because they don't really care. They're just saying it so they get to play both sides. They don't, as long as you're buying tickets, And getting on the plane and they're making money, they don't care. Behavior is what changes things. And if your behavior is you grumble and grice about it, but you still buy the airplane ticket, there's no, it's, why would I change? Why would I put any effort into it? If I'm a CEO of United or American Airlines or Delta, 
I'll come out and virtue signal for you. We really wish that they would take a little bit of guidance and understand, blah, 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 blah. But I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna say, hey, lobbyist, dude, here's, here's five million bucks. Go buy me some freaking votes. Get this shit done. I'm not gonna do that. Why would I spend money? I'm making just as much money as before, if not more. Don't fly. I don't care if you're going across the country. Take a couple extra days off, put some podcasts or audiobooks on, and have a freaking road trip and see your country before it falls apart. Stop flying until they change. Do it. And I did it a year ago, and I never said nothing. I, I was waiting to see if anybody else would do it, and I didn't. I'm not a big guy calling for boycotts in the first place. And, and I honestly believe that the people would do it on their own. I, again, put too much faith in the people of this country. But I, I, I'm starting to hear the rumblings. I'm not going to fly until this is gone. The rumblings always are like pre-shocks before the earthquake. I think the earthquake's coming. And in this case, it's an earthquake I would like very much to, uh, to encourage. Next up, I had a question about buying an airsoft gun for training and what company to buy from to make sure you get a good gun. Okay. We're going to take that question and we're going to go buying an airsoft gun, how to pick a good one for your needs. And we're going to take the company to buy it from and making sure it's good because of the company you buy it from. And we're going to throw it away. We're going to throw it away. You're not going to buy an airsoft gun from the company that makes it in general anyway. All airsoft guns are going to require you to learn your equipment kind of like you learn a firearm, except it's different. If you buy an airsoft gun, I'm going to suggest right now, for training purposes, you want to buy what's called a gas blowback. It's going to have a magazine, and that magazine is going to use either propane or something called green gas. And you're going to put it into that magazine, and that's going to hold not just your pellets, it's going to hold your gas. And when you insert it into the weapon and, you know, take the safety off and point it down range and pull the trigger, the gas from there will be released into this and cycle the action and distribute a pellet so it can be fired. So bang, 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 three shots out of your AR professional training rifle airsoft gun. And they all work the same way. And here's the truth. All of them are going to have malfunctions. And one of the most common ones is the O-ring inside the magazine is going to dry out no matter how much lubricant you use eventually, and it's going to fail and it's going to leak air. Or the valve itself that you install into the magazine, it looks like a little tire valve and it's not much different, honestly, will stick or fail and seep out air. So what are you going to do? You're going to go look up your model of airsoft gun on YouTube and let a 14-year-old kid that plays airsoft every weekend with his friends show you how to fix your magazine. And you're going to buy some extra valves that are specific to your magazine and use a little straight-tip screwdriver so that you, when they fit, when they fail, you can change them. You're going to learn that sometimes you can take your valve out and soak it in lubricant, which is silicon oil that you use for lubricant and this stuff. And that way you're going to have them on the shelf for backup, and you're going to learn to maintain it. And it's going to have failures. I don't care if you buy the best thing on the planet, it's going to have failures. You want to be spending somewhere near a hundred bucks and up if you're looking for a gas blowback that's going to be reliable long term with the maintenance, like I just said. And the two places I would suggest you look to buy your airsoft gun, one's called Evike, E-V-I-K-E. They are the largest online retailer of airsoft guns in the country. 
They are reliable, dependable. They will ship for you. If they send you something that gets broke, it's broken when you get it, they will stand behind it. Uh, and you probably won't get anything that's broken. If you can't find what you're looking for, there is a company that sells online called Army Panda. And they're shipping out of Hong Kong, either Hong Kong or Taiwan. I don't remember which one. But basically, when you order something, it gets shipped out after they make it. And they are doing some things that a lot of other manufacturers won't do. They're violating trademarks. Why is this important? Because if, like one of my friends, you really like Glock 19s and you carry a Glock 19, Glock has refused to license its likeness to any airsoft company. So if you want a SIG 239, you can literally buy an exact replica of a SIG 239 And the company making the airsoft gun is paying a license. It even says SIG on it. And they're paying a license fee to SIG in order to do that. Glock said, we ain't going to do that. And the people over in China or Taiwan, whichever one it is, said, we don't care. So I had to wait like four weeks to get that Glock 19 as a gift to my friend. But I got a, they don't call it a Glock 19. It's a Glock. It's exactly a scale replica. It looks exactly, it just doesn't say Glock on it, right? And it's Army Panda. Somebody's asking there on Twitch. The company's called Army Panda. And they pretty much have everything. If Evike has it, I wouldn't buy it from Army Panda because you're going to get a lot quicker from Evike unless they tell you that it's a problem. Now, it's important to understand, if you're going to use a propane bottle adapter for your gas blowback, and I think you should, you need to get silicon oil, And every so often when you fill it, basically you take your little adapter off of your propane tank and you spray silicon oil right into the top of the propane tank, little reservoir there, and you put it back on. Because if you do not have silicon oil in your gas propellant, you will dry out your O-rings a lot faster and you will create failures and problems in the gun. In fact, the only thing that green gas is, it's not green gas, it's propane. It's also propane. It has an additive that takes away the stink that they put in the propane because they don't use pure propane without the stink. That's dangerous, right? So it's a little propane can with anti-stink, and it has the silicon oil in it. And it costs for in, in in return for that privilege, you pay three to four x what you would pay for little one pound cylinders of propane. Now, real quick. Okay, so somebody's saying this is why I like doing these live feeds. I get corrected. Euromax now has a licensed Glock Airsoft. That's great. So now if you're a Glock shooter, you can get one. I don't know why you're a Glock shooter, but I, I digress. The Glock is a fine weapon. It really is. I personally don't like it. Okay. I don't like the way a Glock feels in my hands. I don't like the shape and the form and the angle. I don't like it, but I grew up, I was seven years old shooting a, Freaking World War One generation, freaking 1911. So that's that's my personal issues. That's not anything against Glock. Um, but if you want a Glock, you can get one. The reason I think this makes a lot of sense. People say it's not exactly the same. No, but it's mostly the same. When you remove it from a holster, it's the same. The weight is about the same. The all of the the you know where the safety is, the gun gear, all of it, the magazine release on these weapons, they're all the same. The muscle memory is the same. Drawing the weapon, pressing into your stance, lining up your sights, pulling the trigger, all the same. 
The only place it's not the same is it doesn't have the noise report or the, the full recoil as a simulated recoil, and that means you can stay on a target a lot better with it. The other thing that it has that makes it not the same in a negative way is that when you miss your first shot, because it's not a bullet, it's a pellet moving at about 350 feet per second, you can see your impact, and your mind will manually adjust your second shot, and you'll think you're better on your follow-up than you are. How do we mitigate this? One, when we do our follow-up shot, we switch to a second target, right? Okay, that's one way. Or we draw, we fire a shot, we return to the holster. Both of those will mitigate that. And you can still do your double taps and things like that. Just you have to be conscious. Like if you're always missing your first shot and hitting your second, you're not getting better. You just, you just need to be honest with yourself. People are like, well, you can put, you know, a thousand rounds in the, the AR magazine. Well, not with a gas blowback, you can't. With an AEG, which is an electric version, you can. Even if you're using an AEG, well, limit yourself. If you use 30-round mags, put 30 pellets. I have a professional training rifle, AR uh, uh, rifle, and the magazine will hold a maximum of 40 pellets. If I wanted to train with count, shot count, and all, just you put 30 in it. They make 40-round mags, though. I'm just saying some, some of us have some of those. Um but yeah, I, I really recommend it. And right now, I, with prices and ammo shortages, I don't want to actually, the ammo I have, I don't want to be ripping it up on the range. It's fun. I like to do it. I'll do some. But if I want to practice regularly right now, it's, it's more the case that it's economical to go this route than it ever has been. All right. So, um, do not be afraid to buy one though, right? Don't be like, I want to make sure I get the very best. If you're, if you're spending more than 80 bucks and on some metal models, you're going to be end up spending for the better guns, like 140, 160. And I, I don't know what's happened to pricing. So maybe it's higher now than the last time I, I priced them. But if you're spending in that, that mid tier range, you're going to get about as good as you can. Read reviews, et cetera. Buy the gun that matches what you shoot and what you carry and train with it. And as far as like, you know, the, when you read a mag, a thing, the magazine failed and it leaks air. All of them do. I'm just saying, all of them do, and they always will. Next up, I want to play for you right now. And those of you that are listening to the audio, it may be a little hard to follow. After I get the audio version up, though, I'm going to put this video up, not just inside today's live stream, but as a standalone. It's already there. I just haven't turned it on yet because I wanted to debut here. These are the upgrades that I'm doing to my duck aquatic system. And actually, the ducks don't go into it, but it feeds them, and their nutrient feeds it. So, here we go, and I get to take a 10-minute break, and you guys get to see something really cool. So, guys, I thought I'd shoot a little video of some upgrades that are happening out here uh, with the duck pond system. And for those watching the video versus just getting the audio on the podcast, of course, this is the heart of the system. This is an 8x16 pond. It's roughly two feet deep at the deepest, stocked with bullheads, and you can see the water hyacinth just beginning to green up and start to spread out in another month it'll be completely covering the pond and of course i feed that and make compost with that to the ducks and they get in that bin right there and later that material goes with the bedding into the larger compost systems and then these three tanks here primarily grow um, goldfish and minnows which actually are feedstock for the bullheads and there's also goldfish and minnows in the main tank this is the system as it was installed. Later, we put in these three wicking beds, 
I'm not wicking beds, uh, ebb and flow beds. You can see this one is primarily just growing green onions right now. I'm just beginning to start planting them out. Um, there's some stuff going on here that I, I really won't belabor today, but there is some uh, water chestnut in here being sprouted out. It will actually probably be planted elsewhere. I'll probably leave one in this bed. What's cool about these beds like this is if you look inside this one, you see how much higher I'm holding the water. So this is the outflow when this cycles in. So this is a very short ebb and flow right now because I have some aquatic plants, namely those chromes of the uh, Chinese water chestnut in there. So I want to keep the, the system really damp. Little lettuce leaf basil coming up there. <clears throat> and this will make more sense if you're watching the video again. You can see that I've all the way to the bottom with this one when it, when it ebbs back out, same height when it flows in. So even though these are on one common pump, this one, just by changing that, I change how much water we hold in the system. This is really useful when you're planting plants from seed directly into an ebb and flow bed. You can keep that water really high until those plants start to put roots in, and then you can just pull that stand up out and drop it down. So that's the system as it was. Here's the expansion. Some of this I've already talked about, but I thought it'd be good today. We have a uh, five-tiered system, basically. It's four tanks, but the fifth tier is going back into the pond. So this single pipe here runs off the same pump that runs these three tanks. These three tanks are on a common flow, common level, three deliveries, one return right there to the corner of the tank. These four, we have one pipe coming in, plenty of pressure left. You can see that I have quite a bit of restriction on this pump and all three of those. So we could add another tier if we really wanted to off that one pump. And that's, that's really making the most of energy. Now, the other thing that's happening here is so you can see we're getting plenty of bubbles. One of my patented little air stacks here with that delivery coming in. So that's just the water coming into the first tank. These tanks hold when full about 150 gallons. They're probably holding about 100 gallons at the level I have them set. Um, here you can see the overflow apparatus I set up. It's two inch pipe and it has these little screens that you buy at Home Depot or Lowe's. They're like a buck a piece. So it has three of those. There's two under the water, goes to a T, and then this piece comes above the water. And what that does is if we ever get a like kind of a clog up on these things down here in the water, right, and it does happen and that water level begins to rise, this still gives me about an inch and a half, two inches of freeboard above the top of the tank before we get an overflow. And it gives me more time to catch it because this one will start out completely clean. So this is a modification I made to the overflow. I do not use these to set the height of the water. I use these overflow stacks on the other side. So this height of this right here sets the height of that tank and that goes all the way through and then returns to that corner. So what we're gonna be doing with these tanks, that's a little bit different than the ones up against the wall. Since they get a lot more sun, these are gonna be growing duck potato, water chestnut, aquatic mint, Ipomera aquatica, which is Chinese water spinach, all kinds of stuff like that. These are gonna primarily be plant growing systems, these four tanks instead of more fish. We do have gambrosia, which are the mosquito fish minnows in them. Uh, and we do have um, our neocardania shrimp in them, which are also feedstock and just one of my little experiments. Additionally, I talked about this before. I have added these little bulkheads here and this little stand up. So I got a half inch bulkhead in addition to the two inch bulkhead that's doing the return line that just comes out the side of the tank. If I push that under, you can see water pours out quite aggressively. So what we're doing now, we're setting up each one of these four tanks has an additional overflow bulkhead. 
And now it'll start to make more sense. If you look down here in the field, you'll see there's three stone kind of uh, rings, I guess, more squarish than ringish. This one's already filled with soil. I have a little paver sitting there so that the water gets distributed instead of erosive. And each one of these is gonna have a chestnut tree planted in it that can be watered from that system, that main system up there. So now the system's growing trees in addition to all the annual and perennial aquatic vegetation in the fish. And all it takes is tipping those over, set a timer for two or three minutes and tip them back up. And each tank has its own overflow. So there's three tanks here, three locations downgrade there. Where's tank number four gonna go? Right here, just off to the side. Big old chestnut tree will be growing here. I need to get it filled in. You see my material up higher in the field. I've got a, about eight, 10 yards of uh, material left up there. Uh, fill dirt. So we'll fill these in. That one will come off there. I'm thinking about actually popping one on the end tank on the three and planting something right over in there, especially once I get rid of this brush pile uh, that I just simply will not burn this time of year between the wind and how dry it is. And that's, uh, that's it for now, but how do you like it? It produces compost. It produces duck food. It produces people food. It produces aquatic vegetation. It has ebb and flow aquaponics built into it. I've got my little sacks up there full of uh, wood chips. So that's probably going to, that's probably going to produce us Kingsterforia mushrooms in those grow bags, but I'm not done yet. No, 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 no. We forgot all about this. My feed trough from Tractor Supply. So this is going to have those grow bags in it running as a wicking bed, a portable wicking bed system. Water comes in one bulkhead on one side, goes that sets the level on the other side, flows back, timer goes off, drains through. This will go off four times a day. Had to get it up on cinder blocks. Uh, that drop is a lot more than you would think it is in getting back into the pond. So we've got that. And one more, because I'm not done yet. Right here. Uh, you don't see nothing yet. I know you don't. Okay. So you can see that I've got a pipe coming out of that tank to here, which is the uh, the first tree section. All right. That's going to change. This tank is so low that even with the drop here, it, it flows very, very slowly water to this tree. But I want to dig one trench for this distance here. So what I'm going to do is take the slightly higher tank, come off it on a right angle, go over to the lower tank, put both pipes in the same trench down to here. The higher tank will end up being the one that waters this one. The pipe that's doing it right now will come over on a right angle and go straight down to that one. And with that much drop, this lower tank will flow a lot better to watering that. This tank will come here. Now that does one more thing for me. I really didn't want a pipe coming out of here coming down this way not just because i don't want to i'd rather dig you know what is that 10 foot of extra trench than, than 50 foot of extra trench obviously but more important there's your overflow of your pond right there so that pond overflows right now and i didn't want to have to do what i'm about to show you and cross a pipe underground with a swale i'm going to come about right here and just about where that pipe is will be the edge, so it won't have to worry about that pipe because I can't dig very deep here. I'm gonna have a swale that's gonna be about the width of a sidewalk, okay? About 36 inches flat, like a sidewalk, all the way over to here. So we're gonna have about 30 foot of swale. Little mini micro expedition, ex excavation, right? Shovel excavation. 
I'll take my uh, tiller, which I do still keep around, and I will till the area. It'll make it easy. Clean it out, go downgrade side with a pile. Then I'll build that berm up even more with some of that fill dirt that I have sitting over there in the field. This is all going to be planted with bush cherries and maybe cornelian, some cornelian cherries as well. Take some of that fill dirt, make a little bit of an incline to get over this area right here between these two tanks. And I'm going to take the leftover liner from the pond and line that like a creek bed. And every time this pond floods, either by natural action or by intent, in other words, I can just turn on that hose bib I installed over there with a float valve now. And I can put a timer on the other side of it and just run water for 30 minutes and overflow that high nutrient. It'll come right down that little dry riverbed. You won't see the line. I'll cover it with rocks. Hit this swale and spread out and water. So now we're going to have bush cherries, cornelian cherries, chestnuts, um, aquatic vegetation like duck potato. All of this off this one system and we're not even really beginning to push its capabilities hope you guys enjoyed that if you got the audio only not only can you watch the video of the whole podcast today but you can get just the video that you just heard in audio on my uh on my various platforms rumble youtube odyssey etc all right guys hope you enjoyed that and it goes straight into my next segment so I wanted to talk to you a little bit about what you should be doing to deal with food supply shortages and runaway inflation right now. And one is good old-fashioned prepping. The stores are not empty. The food's more expensive, but it's not out-of-the-world out expensive, especially things that are storable. If you're not copy-canning, building up that deep pantry and all right now, I don't know when the hell you're going to get a fire lit under your ass, especially if you're somebody that watches the Survival Podcast or listens to the Survival Podcast. You need to take this seriously. This is not getting any better anytime soon. Some of the people I really respect in the economic world are still buying into the fiction that this is transitory, not the way that the Biden administration explained it that way, but still like it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay, but okay can be really bad. You need to be taking your basic preparedness extremely seriously right now, more seriously, especially with food than at any time in the 14 years that I've been doing this, I'm not screaming and yelling, but I'm telling you, when I was telling you to store food 10 years ago, I meant it. Now I really, 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 really fucking mean it, okay? Like, take this seriously. You're running out of time before we hit a critical stage in what's coming. Our economy is screwed. I talked about the the, the yield curve inversion a week ago. Now you're seeing interest rates risen it, the alarm bells could not be louder than they are right now. And fixing this at this point is going to be extremely difficult. And, and what I've tried to explain over the years is when everything looks super, the balance between supply and demand is, has a razor thin separation due to things like just in time inventory and the efficiency that we try to run these things at. When there's a hiccup, it's bad. It's going to get worse. It's going to get worse. It's going to get worse. I can't be more clear. But the other side that you need to be doing right now, you need to be building long-term food stability into your life. That's why I showed you that video today. Think about how much food stability, and it's it's immediate. Right now, there's food growing in there. Right now, if we cannot get meat tonight, I can. I got a hundred bullheads in there that are are pan size, right? My wife and I with a good meal, two a piece. That's four. Okay. So what do we got? 25 days of meat sitting there. 
without even touching the vegetation. And the vegetation is all about to explode. We're hitting the time of year for that. Plus, we're putting these long-term fruit and nut trees into the system. Plus, eventually, I'll be adding fodder trees into this system as well. And that's one small system, and I've made it my flagship system now, more so than even like my big, giant uh, 12-foot Miyagi and what have you, because it fits in a backyard. And that's why I'm doing this course as well. It is time to think at a different level. And what I need you guys to understand as well is if you can produce more food than you need, You're going to have a revenue source if things get really bad. And I'm not saying they're going to. I'm saying I think they're going to. I'm pretty sure. I'm betting on it going sideways from here pretty bad. No one will ever get to the point where like, screw that. I don't need food. I don't need food. Like, you're going to have neighbors to sell food to if you do this right. And the beauty is food can go through the roof in price, and you can still sell at a fair price if you're doing things this way. My input costs don't go up because I have almost no inputs. My input is electricity for the pump, and it's, that's a pretty low input. I spend a lot more money cooling my house with air conditioning than I ever will on on pond pumps, even with as many systems as I have. And in that system, the big pump draws 87 watts, and the little pump draws 15. Think about all that that'll do, and you need to be doing something like this. You need to be building for the future and stability for your family, And you need to be building an income stream at the same time. All right. Next up, somebody asked me about using hydroponics to grow livestock feed for pigs. This person lives kind of in a desert climate. Yeah, sure. But, you, you know, I mean, pigs eat a lot. So I guess if it's like an adjunctive kind of add-on additional vitamins. And you can grow a lot for a little with, with hydro. But they asked about Kratky, and it's probably not what I would do. Kratky uses a lot of fluid. A lot of fertilizer fluid relative to the amount of stuff you're growing because you're allowing for evaporation and you need depth. Um, if I wanted to grow food for pigs, I would find the greens that are most palatable to them that grow at the fastest rate because that's what you're going to grow with hydro. And I would use like kind of a modified NFT system, which is kind of like pipes or um, rain downspout uh, pieces Or what else works really good for them are the uh, the post pieces for the uh, white PVC fencing, something like that. But I would go deeper than traditional NFT with the amount of flow, kind of like the four-inch pipe system in my greenhouse. Because you can grow a lot of greens really, really fast with that. And it is much more trouble-free, and it uses much less affluent per plant grown. Kratky was designed for a specific reason, and it wasn't to feed pigs. So I guess you have to look at how many pigs you have, how much you're going to grow, what your expectations are, and what your cost of production is. Um, I'd rather grow food for me with hydro and have salad with my pork chops, but it depends. Uh, next up, I get a lot of questions about seed mixes. I wanted to hit this one really quick. And the questions that I get on seed mixes are always, I need a good cover crop. Where can I buy a seed mix? I need a, and the, the latest one was, I need a good medicinal seed mix for medicinal herbs growing in a lawn. Uh, I need fill-in-the-blank, so where do I buy my fill-in-the-blank seed mix? Stop thinking this way. You don't buy a seed mix. You make one. What do you want? Figure out what it is, buy seed or plants, and establish it. And the idea that you're just going to get this seed mix and just throw it on your lawn, you know, and it's going to work out, Uh, you'll end up with some things popping up. That'll be great. And the ones that do will be the honey badgers. 
But a lot of our medicinal herbs are perennials, and the best thing to do with those is to actually give them love, plant them from seed if you have to, or get rootstock or whatever, get them growing and start propagating them. And then at the right time, when they're going to have the highest survival rate, start planting them into your system where you want them. Now, if you're talking cover crop and stuff like that, then you're talking things like in the winter you want to look at radish and turnip and winter pea and stuff, or in the summer you're going to look at things like buckwheat uh, and vetch and other, you know, that are more of a, a, you know, clovers or what have you. And, yeah, then you're going to make your own mix-up. Um, you'll find a lot of mixes are made up 50% or more of annual ryegrass because especially a cover crop, you're looking for it to have winter or summer kill anyway. And and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with it, but you're paying a premium for something that's cheap. Even with current prices, I can go buy a 50-pound sack of perennial or annual ryegrass for like 20 bucks at Tracker Supply. That's a lot of annual ryegrass seed, man. And And why pay for it in a mix? So I would really get to making your own mixes. And when you're like, well, what do I plant? What do you want? And what grows in your climate? And what can you get? Make a Venn diagram. I want this. This grows in my climate. I can get this. Plant plant the things in the middle. That's that's what you do, guys. Um, this is one of those things people keep making hard. And, it, again, it, it's like the ammunition companies convincing you you need the new super Teflon-coated dynamic expansion exploding warhead 30-06 round to kill the deer because now the deer is in a flak jacket. People want to sell you these mixes, so they kind of hype them up a bit. Buy small amounts of different seeds, combine them, and make your own mixes. Uh, and again, Venn diagram. I want, grows in my climate, and I can acquire. In the center, there's your answer. I know that like people want to just be given a cookbook answer. It won't help you. It won't help you because then what will have the same thing with celery, right? So the celery soup problem. For those who have not heard me talk about this, you give somebody a recipe for chicken soup, a parsley soup problem because parsley is even more trivial. You say, put all these things in, make your chicken soup, blah, 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 blah. And, you know, one of the ingredients is a handful of fresh parsley. Well, then they, I don't have fresh parsley. And so they don't have fresh parsley, so they don't make the soup. You put everything else in the soup and maybe you have some carrot tops, right? So you chop your carrot tops and use them as a substitute for parsley or you go without it. You make the soup. And when you give somebody a recipe for a cover crop and they can't get something, they're like, well, where do I get it since I can't get it? I don't know, man. Put some other crap in there. Right. And another thing you can do with establishing medicinal herbs or any herbage that you want in your in your uh, land, find out what grows natively around you and harvest seed and or rootstock locally and transplant it. And then just be smart about when if you dig up some sort of perennial rootstock in July and it's 105 degrees, and you go out in the middle of your lawn and you dig a hole and you stick it in there, even if you water it regularly, it's probably going to die. So don't do that. You know, use hardening off, use gentle transplant, use timing to your advantage, do transplants at the right time for whatever you're doing. Next, um, I was also asked about building up a seed bank. What I suggest, and this is what I've done, and it's, it's worked really well, Things that you actually want to stick and plant in a specific place, harvest some seed every year. Save it till the next year in case you don't get seed that year. But at least every two years be replacing it. And then take what you have from years earlier 
and go broadcast it in places where if it volunteers, you're happy. And always have fresh seed on hand, no more than two seasons old. Right? If it's something you have plenty on hand, um, or you don't want to plant it that way, broadcast it when it goes to seed. Plants go to seed at the time of year that's right for them, and the stuff that just grows is going to be the stuff that's best selected. So, like, when I have a lettuce plant go to seed, I let it go completely to seed. And I cut the stalk, and I just throw seed everywhere in some random places around the property. Then I take the giant stalk that you wouldn't think anything would eat, and I throw it to the ducks, and they eat it anyway, right? Like, that's that's the way to be. This idea that we're going to have these, like, survival seed banks or whatever, I stop reading Prepper Pick Fiction. What you'll see is you'll take a seed stock, you do a germination test, you get 98% germination. Next season, you get 86% germination. Next season, you get 72% germination. After that, you dwindle below 60. Now, it's okay. And if you don't have replacement and you're two years in, keep it until you develop replacement. And when you get down to a 50% germination rate for every hole put in three seeds, that gives you a 30% optimum germination versus 50% expected. I just planted some nasturtium seed that I found that was like four years old. I put like five nasturtiums in every hole. And I got like average of two germinating. So that gives me what's a germination rate of around 40%. I'm okay with it, but I don't want to rely on it. This is, and the best seed bank is the volunteer seeds that are on your land everywhere creating land races for you. Last, um, <clears throat> I'll talk a little bit about anarchism here. And a recent conversation that I heard between Robert Breedlove, who's an anarchist, anarcho-capitalist, and Peter McCormack, when he interviewed Robert on the What Bitcoin Did show, and it really wasn't about Bitcoin much at all. It was really about anarchism versus statism. And Peter's more of a collectivist. He's from the UK, and we need this. And I listened to them discussing this, and I heard Robert several times go, ugh, like you could tell like this mental pain at trying to figure out how to have this conversation with somebody whose entire objection to anarchism is, I just can't see how it would work. I just can't see how it would work. Now, I asked you this question when I primed the pump at the beginning of today's episode. What I'd love to see somebody put this. Um, I'd love to see somebody put this in the chat for me. What do we call a person that says, I can't see? How do we describe that person? What do you call a person that says, I can't see? It starts with a B. It's another word for a thing that covers up your window so the light doesn't come in. There we go. Hunter F770 off of uh, Twitch, blind. Country Green Acres, blind. Uh, Rook Indy, blind. Right, right. So we call a person that can't see blind. So you're having a conversation about anarchism, and their objection to anarchism isn't you're wrong. It isn't that it isn't that tax isn't theft. It isn't that we shouldn't use coercion and force on peaceful people. It isn't any of those things. I'm opposed to this because I can't see how it would work. And so what you're doing is you're taking a person that's physically blind and trying to tell them what green looks like. You're ne- you might as well take a hammer and just hit start hitting yourself in the face with it. You're never going to explain what green looks like to an actual blind person. The thing is, the person isn't actually blind. They have temporary blindness. And the person worth having this conversation 
with would be the person that is self-described small government minarchist somewhere in that range. The person that's still advocating that we need a carbon tax because the ocean doesn't boil and that we need government provided health care for everybody and like full on cradle to grave government control. You can't have this conversation. They have the matrix plugged in 17 ways from Sunday. Can't have it. The person that's in that realm. What do you do when a person has temporary partial blindness, especially from something like snow blindness where they have too much light in their eyes? Do you turn every light on in the room and say, look at it? Or do you bring the lights up slowly and let their eyes adjust to one thing? So the conversation with this person needs to be, let's just take anarchism and throw it out. You tell me one place where government interferes with people's lives, where government uses coercion and force, where government has a law or a regulation or a tax that's required, just one. That not only could we cut, but we could completely do without. Can you come up with one? And then you've got that blind person struggling to see just a little bit. And most of them will give you one. Wow, you got one. Can we do another one? And maybe take them through two that are their own making. And then walk away. You planted a seed. You don't put a seed in the ground. Even a fast growing seed like a radish. You don't put a seed in the ground and go, grow! Right? You put the seed in the ground, you water it, and you walk away. Come back a week later, a little green shoot sticking up. You don't pick it unless it's a microgreen, right? You leave it grow. You Oh, look, it's green. Give it some more water, a little fertilizer, walk away. The number one reason people stick at minarchism and don't become anarchists isn't because they can't see. It's because we anarchists keep throwing dirt in their eyes and shining flashlights in their eyes. We talk shit to them. We put them down. We insult them. We, we say shit like, oh, you're the guy that wants to leave a little bit of cancer in. Right? So we have these dyed in the wool statists, 100% indoctrinated. Screw them. We don't care. We go ape shit on the people that are five degrees away from where we're at and we forget how much time we spent in that space. So help them see and walk away. And that's the conversation we need to have. Because when somebody says they can't see a thing, and you try to force them to look at it, they're not going to. And this is the number one reason that holds people back into this minarchist statist mindset, is since they don't understand how it works. So if that's you, I would just say, so if in 1995, I say what we should do is we, we should create a global currency that's completely controlled by private individuals on a 100% voluntary basis, This currency should be able to be transacted in a frictionless environment from one place in the world to any other place in the world in seconds. It should be at least pseudonymous, so if you do things the right way, nobody knows who sent anything to anybody. At the same time, this global currency should be fungible into any fiat currency anywhere in the world in trade 24-7, 365 on an open exchange. It should be done in such a way that the government cannot stop it, And even if they try to regulate it, they look stupid. They look like somebody trying to sweep water off of a beach. It should be something that anybody that has the most simplistic computer hardware available to them and a connection to this new thing called the Internet that did exist in 1995 can use. Whether they have a cell phone in Nigeria or a bank of computers in America or Japan, 
It should be able to go anywhere, anytime, any place in a frictionless environment. We should be able to tell everybody that it exists. And it should be real money that's more powerful than the United States dollar and outperforms the United States dollar in every measurable way. It should be something that people that want to do things above board can use and people that want to do things below board can use. It can go in the black market, the gray market, or the white market. Anywhere, anytime, any place. Right in front of government and they should not be able to do a damn thing about it. You'd say, wow. You sound like a dumbass, buddy. There's no way that can be done. If that could be done, somebody would have done it already. Today we have Bitcoin. A bunch of other cryptos as well, but we have Bitcoin. That's what Bitcoin does. Bitcoin replaced the need for the government to make, maintain, and control money. Now, that happened in 10 years. Right? About 10 years' time, we've gone from Bitcoin being an idea on a forum to being a global tradable, on-demand currency that along with lightning can go frictionless around the world for fractions of a percent on a fee. And yet, if I flee the Ukraine with a brain wallet or a hardware wallet with one Bitcoin, when I arrive in my new place, I have wealth that nobody can take from me. And I can use it and transform it into local currency if that's what I need to do. So, Back in 1995, you would have said, I can't see how. And if I would have been a visionary that saw this coming and explained it to you, you would have said, no, that can't work. And anarchism, again, I think the other problem is that people, we think too much of ourselves. If I become an anarchist, you know what happens? Nothing. Stop worrying about it. It doesn't matter. It's not like, well, I'm not going to advocate for no government because I... No one cares what you advocate for. I have 200,000 people that download my audio podcast. No one gives a fuck what I, what I advocate for in a meaningful manner. I don't move the needle on this. All I do is start conversations with you and how you think and how you feel and how you act matters in your life. I'm not going to influence public policy. I'm not going to like make government dissolve into nothingness, right? I'm not going to cause that to happen with 200,000 people listening to me. Or a couple hundred listening to a live stream, right? You and your Facebook post are not going to change or move the needle. You're not going to fuck up the planet into a doomsday, like, road warrior apocalypse because you decide to actually follow your morals. Because in the end, anarchists are not people who want to make the world become anarchistic. We live our life on our own terms. We do it now. We don't give a shit. We made a moral decision. I personally think it's wrong to use force on peaceful people and take from them against their will. That's a moral choice. And I also find it completely reasonable that anybody in that position, including myself, would use whatever's available to us to resist it. That's where we are right now. That's anarchism. I don't care what you believe. It doesn't matter. Now, I want you to live your life based on your principles and your morals and your path, and if you really believe in statism, not because you can't see the alternative, because you really do, then that's the path you should walk. I'm okay with it. I'm okay with it. Because I can't change it anyway, so why am I going to get upset about it? But if it's only because you can't see, my message to you, open your fucking eyes. All right? With that, yeah, we do think too much of ourselves. That is... 
from Hunter. Yeah. We think too much of ourselves. We, we actually think that if we make this psychological change, that something will happen. When you tell people, it's the same thing when you tell people, don't watch the news. Oh my God. I can't believe you're saying that. Like if you stop watching the news, something will change. Something different will happen. It will actually matter. It won't. It won't. Turn off the news. Let's go through some of the starred stuff here. Um, Adrian says, how much Bitcoin would you buy as a percentage of net worth if you don't have any or close to none? Five to ten percent. Good start. Good start. Um, I hold a huge percentage of my net wealth in crypto. But that's because I bought it when it was a lot less expensive. And I think that if you start buying now, you'll you'll follow that same path. Like, yeah, you might get into that range. I would, first of all, no matter what your net wealth is, my first goal for anybody going into crypto, whether it takes five years or one day, you figure it out for you with what you're comfortable investing. Get to the left of the decimal. Get to a, a single Bitcoin, a full Bitcoin. And then you can figure it out from there. But I'm going to tell you, we we can only go so much longer before we have a spot ETF. And one Bitcoin ETF, not some futures bullshit fake-ass ETF, a real spot ETF becomes available to the average person with an IRA 401k, it's game over. This opportunity will go away. And there's going to be ups and downs. And if you can't, like if you went and put... 40 grand and bought one Bitcoin in and tomorrow it was worth 30. If you're going to have heartache over that, don't do it because it's absolutely possible. If you can set your time horizon five years or more with money you're allocating into this space today, you can stop worrying. If you can't set your time horizon that far out, I don't know if it's right for you. You still have to determine your own risk ratio. How much Bitcoin would you buy? Uh, That's like the same question from a different person. It's the same question from two different people. It's literally the same question. Uh, John Henry, why isn't Bitcoin reacting like gold to inflation? Uh, I wish I could bring back the stock to flow model back, but I, I closed that page and tab so it wouldn't cause any uh, resources issues. Because gold has been flat on its ass for 10 years and hasn't gone up in 10 years. So there's, there, there, there's more potential upward movement in gold because it's been an underperforming asset for a decade. Bitcoin has been explosive over a decade. And when you say reacting to inflation, you're talking about this little tiny piece of inflation you're seeing right now. Bitcoin has well overperformed gold in re- reaction to inflation over a 10-year period, over a five-year period, over a four-year period. So it's actually doing better. But we're looking at this tiny scope right now of a volatile asset that goes up continuously with drops in between. That's why. Uh, Ron says, Jack, do you believe Biden will finish his term? <sighs> I do, but... I honestly believe, I am not saying this is some sort of political hack or because I don't like Democrats or something. I honestly believe Joe Biden is in earlier stages of dementia. And I think that was evident two years ago. And two years ago is a long time in this world of dementia. And I honestly believe if he wasn't getting the absolute cutting edge best medical treatment 
that is available to anybody in the world today, because that's what the president of the United States will get, no matter who they are, that it would look a lot worse. And if he wasn't being managed and controlled, and I, I think to really understand this, there's a movie, I think it's called I Won't for, I Won't Remember You or I Won't Miss You or something like that. It was about Glenn Campbell when he got Alzheimer's. And it was bad. Really bad, but you could still put a guitar in his hand and put him on a stage and he could pick like it was 1966 and sing. And most of the time in his last tour, the audience couldn't believe because they were public about his Alzheimer's. They couldn't believe that it was as bad as it was. And when he would stop and go off script, you would see how bad it was. And there was a couple of times toward the last couple of shows he did where he literally got lost, didn't know where it was. But as long as you put a sheet of music in front of him and is, you know, singing a song that he sung back in the 60s, he could still perform. You're seeing that in Joe Biden. So if they can hold that together, he finishes his term. I do not see him running for reelection. Some excuse is made. Some challenger comes in. And my number one pick for a challenger, and I could be wrong, but it's Joe Manchin. It's Joe Manchin because the only, unless something drastically changes in this country between now and, and 2024, the only way the Democrats hold on to the White House is to have somebody that appears to be an adult in a room and because this woke shit is going to get worse. And, and, and the average person has rejected this out of hand because some common sense came through despite the fluoride in the water and, and 17 injections and everything else. So you need somebody that can say, I am a Democrat. I am a Democrat like like Bill Clinton was in the 90s to try to win. And I don't even know if you can, but that's because the shellacking in November. What the Republicans did with Newt Gingrich and the contract of America is going to look like a day at Disneyland for the Democrats this time around. This is going to be bloody. You're, you're not just going to see the, the suspected districts flipped to, to Republican. You're going to see a lot that were in the probably always Democrat, not the Nancy Pelosi districts and all. They'll stay. It doesn't matter. But a lot of the places that you really think added ah, Democrats will hold, no, they won't. You'll still have Pelosi or whoever takes their place. You'll still have AOC. You'll still have the squad. That's why they're the squad. They're in safe zones. But, man, it's going to be a slaughter, and it's going to be a slaughter on both sides. So the only way Biden doesn't finish is if it gets so bad, you see an invocation of the 25th Amendment. I don't even see the Republicans successfully impeaching him, and I don't see them getting enough votes in the Senate for impeachment to matter. And I think the Republicans will be really stupid unless they vote count ousting the guy in the Senate in advance to do this because it's just going to look like retribution for Trump. And it, no matter what the justification is, if you don't successfully remove him, it's been shown over and over again, impeaching a president without removal from office hurts the party doing it. Next up, uh, the Philippine nomad says we train our students on Glock and 1911 airsoft where we put live fire in their hands at the range. I think it's a good plan. And I think there's other things you can do with um, Airsoft that you can't do with live fire. I can't sit somebody in a mock-up restaurant with a bunch of people around them and have a bad guy pop in there and start doing a, a simulated mass shooting with real bullets. But I can do it with Airsoft. And I can set uh, traps where 
our hero, who knows he's on the spot, might end up shooting somebody he wasn't supposed to. I can make it real. And I can tell you that will you be more courageous when somebody's shooting airsoft pellets at you than, you know, nine millimeter uh, rounds? Sure. It It is not without some level of fear. And it does, when you start hearing pop, 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 it does set off things in you. Um, it reminds me of the first time I was ever shot at in the Army wearing Miles gear. And you hear pop, 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 pop. And then you start, you're not hit, so you don't hear the the, the waning beep. Those you're dead. But you hear the beep, beep. Those are close rounds. Those are the ones that just missed you. It puts you in a different zone. And it's not it's not perfect, but nothing's perfect. Nothing's ever going to be perfect. Uh, Ron said, Jack, why'd you cover the little hole in the video? For those that didn't see that because you weren't paying attention or you're on the audio, when I showed the ebb and flow beds, you see the cover I pulled off, and you look down, and you see the bulkheads and the stand-up pipes and all. Those are sprinkler boxes, and they've become my go-to for ebb and flow beds to exclude the media. Those keep all that leak, which are the little clay marbles, from falling in there and clogging up the pipes. They have a little hole that's designed to stick your finger in and pull it out. That hole is big enough that most, not all, of the Lika can go through the hole. Lika, unless it's really, really wet, and the top Lika will never be wet, is a puffed clay marble, and it floats. So if you get a rain event or a surge in the system for some reason, it floats. And then some of it goes in the little hole. And then when it goes in a little hole, it goes into one of the pipes and it creates a clog. Now, if it goes in the pipe that, that shoots water out, it's no big deal because the pressure pushes it out. But if it goes in the overflow stack and clogs that pipe, it starts overflowing your ebb and flow beds and dropping the level in your system. So that's why I did that. I've been thinking about making some out of some washers and some like screws. So it's like a handle. We printed a little plug hole thing for it with the 3D printer, but it didn't stand up to the UV radiation and it got brittle and fall apart. So I didn't make any more. Al says a friend uh, runs a plant company using free boats as stock tanks. Most came with trailers, just a thought for building a, uh, aqua water projects. Uh, my buddy David, who I was chatting with during that video, if you guys saw the, the text chat back and forth, he's bringing me some yarrow and going to steal some of my minnows and shrimps uh, Sunday when him and his wife come over and hang out. He has a boat that was damaged like an aluminum boat and he does like a wicking, uh, an ebb and flow wicking bed with it. Right. So this is a thing. I've seen a lot of things done. There's a lot of boats out there that are just scrap. And, uh, I've seen people build like bury them and build shelters and root cellars and shit. There's a lot of things that can be done with salvage and scrap. Uh, next up, Ron says, that's Jack. Why did you cover the hole? So we already did that one. Al Liren, I grow duck feed in tanks, but haven't solved the duck weed in tanks, I think is what he's trying to say, uh, but haven't solved the overflow issues. Duckweed clogs. All right, so this is one of the things that's getting built into my course. In that video, what I said is you can see the overflow apparatus, and it's under the water. Okay, so if you lowered the other side enough, the water level would come much lower in those tanks. On the other side... There's a dry fit pipe, and by adjusting the height of that pipe where the water comes out versus where it goes in, you can change the level in the tank. So the duckweed isn't going to clog the overflow because the overflow is six to eight inches below the surface. Now, you can still get some algae, and you can get some clogs, and it's important to maintain your system. 
And every day I walk through and check my system and I take any overflow apparatus. I run my hands across it, pull any leaves or gunky stick out of it. And there's some other things I do that I'll cover in the course. But that's the number one way to prevent clogs. There also, if you have to set your overflow with your apparatus in the tank that you're setting the level on, if you need it and there's one place I have, there is a way to do it. I'll also cover that in the course. Um, it's not as effective or as foolproof, but it works. But your number one thing you do with overflow tanks, do not put your overflow at your overflow level. Put it below the surface and control it on the other side where it returns. That's the right way to do things for a variety of reasons. Tam says, I raise meat chickens every year. How do you address those who want to come on your property and test for bird flu and or cull your small flock? Tam, I'm going to make a bet with you. Nobody has come to your property and asked to test your birds or cull your flock. It has not happened. And do you know why? Because you're not Tam's farm advertising on a bunch of places. You're a small backyard homesteader with birds. And what you can do is you can stop worrying about this because it's not going to be an issue. I've been through bird flu like three times since I started keeping birds. You know what happened? Nothing. Nothing. Now, I did have, when we were small-scale commercial, nobody from the state or anything. I had a news agency reach out, and they wanted my opinion as a farmer on bird flu and what we're doing and how our man, I told them to go piss up a rope. I didn't want to attract any attention to myself at all during that period of time. But the reality is my birds are socially distancing, right, you know, uh, from other people's birds. Bird flu is another overhyped pile of shit, right? And they're probably going to use it to try to invoke more pandemic restrictions or some shit on us. They got CDC morons already saying, it will jump to humans. How do you know that? Are you going to make it happen? Maybe. I don't know. But go on with your life and stop worrying about it. Uh, Marco says, is it a good idea to use grass clippings as mulch? Lawn also feeds chickens. No. No. Grass clippings make terrible mulch. What? Why? Uh, because it's pure nitrogen. And even if you dry it completely out first into a brown, it packs too densely and it becomes like slimy. If you want to use grass clippings to help grow plants, you want to mix them with browns and compost them and then mulch with that. Um, now, if you're cutting the grass and you're letting it be spread out and return to the soil, it will help some. But even in that, grass clippings will only do so much because most of the value in them will off-gas if they're not kept moist and warm and part of a composting process. So if you've ever, like, you've mowed a lawn over and over and over and over again, and you never bagged your lawn clippings and you never removed them, and the lawn's good, but it's never really gotten much better. It doesn't seem like it really built a lot of soil. That's why. Because absent some sort of mechanical uh, integration that you do or something like passing through the digestive system of a ruminant or other animal. Like he said, the birds eat it. When the birds eat it, it goes in a perfectly moist, warm, digestive machine and then gets deposited. It works really good that way. Uh, just, just on that one. And then Jonathan says, greetings from CM Homestead. Got a whole week off. Hope I can catch all the lives, Jack. Well, we will have live streaming all next week except for Expert Council Day. Expert Council Day, I don't live stream. It's my one day I take off. 
And if you want to make sure you catch these live streams, number one thing you can do is what? Subscribe to the TSP Telegram channel. I always, always, always announce the live streams in there or just check out tspclive.com. Again, tspclive.com. With that, we've wrapped up another week. Uh, ending it with an outback with Jack. I'm going to come over here real quick to the comments and see if anybody else threw anything. I'll take one here from Bonnie. Uh, Bonnie says, question for Jack, with everything being digitized, this inventory entered into the blockchain, how do you see this as a freedom rather than an enslavement of humanity on a large scale? So, Bonnie, are they coming to your house and putting all your possessions into the blockchain? No? Okay. Um. All you're talking about is inventory control, and we already have that. It's, it's, this is another one of these, like, false flag worries, right? Like, I, I had another person this week, well, when they turn off the power, your Bitcoin will be, no, no. My response to people that say, well, if they turn off the power, your Bitcoin will be worthless. Most of the people that say that, you're not prepared for shit. And if they turn off the power, broad scale across the whole country, so that your Bitcoin isn't usable, neither will your dollars be usable. And you'll be dead in 60 days. So it doesn't matter, right? Um, Troy says, is it worth buying gold now or is it better to wait? I don't know. You know, I've, this is one of those things, like everybody wants to buy things when they go up. Like, I don't know what you should do with your money. I say all the time, every week, right, buy small amounts of silver and or gold and stack PMs. Buy small amounts of Bitcoin and stack Bitcoin, have conventional investments and a good investment manager if you can find one, right? Uh, have tax-deferred and tax-free accounts like Roth IRAs. I, I Invest in real estate, buy a good piece of land, and don't overextend your – like the financial advice I give is very generic because it's what works. So if you're thinking right now I think the economy is going to melt down, so I'm going to go out and buy a whole shitload – of gold. Bad idea. You're reacting in fear. If you're going to go all in on a thing, you go all in when everybody's selling it. And you sell it when everybody's buying it. If you're not going to take the long-term approach, if you're attempting to make a trade based on the future, when everybody's scared, you be brave. And when everybody's brave, you be scared. Warren Buffett's right, even if you don't like the guy. Uh, Fire... Proof Foxes, would it be worth putting things on hold and waiting to take your course first? I'm beginning stages of turning 25,000 gallon above ground pool into an aquaculture ponics pond. Uh, I wouldn't wait on me for that. However, I'm going to tell you something about doing that. You're going to have a great pond. You're going to have to think about water temperature heavily. And I personally believe that burying at 50% in above ground pool will go a long way to help with that, right? Or using shade. The other thing that you're going to find out, and I like the above-ground pool model. I think it's one of the co most cost-effective per-gallon things you can do. A lot of the things that I teach involve moving water, overflowing it, and returning it. Even when you're only two feet above grade, it makes that a lot more challenging, unless you have elevation in the property and enough distance to use to work with it. So it's above-ground pools are going to be a challenge with that aspect, but there's a lot you can do anyway. And I think that my course will help you. And I'm trying to walk a balance here. I don't want anybody to wait on me. 
On the other hand, there are some key critical errors that you can make. So I guess you have to make that decision for yourself. But if you are head fast that you're going to do an above ground pool conversion, I'm just going to ask you, you know, can you basically, if it's already set up, it might be worth like the 500 bucks to have somebody come take it down and put it back up for you. Cause that's usually about what those guys charge excavating and, and doing a 50% barrier burial. Cause a four foot, a five, well, usually they're five foot walls. Four foot of depth, roughly. And the other thing you can do with an above ground pool, and then I really do need to sign off today, is so let's say you have a four foot, a 48 inch depth in your pool. You can go down another two feet in a deep end with an above ground pool. So you can have six foot of depth and the liner will stretch and form fit that. You can't take the whole pool that deep. But the walls will handle up to a two-foot barrier on a four-foot wall, and you can go another two feet. I would do that. And even if the pool's already set up, if it's doable, I would do that. Because it's a buy once, cry once, and once you've done all the work, you're really not going to want to do it then. And if I was sourcing, a, because this is why it's a great option. There's tons of above ground pools for next to nothing or free on Craigslist. And even if you have to buy a liner, they're not that expensive. And then there's tons of people that that's what they do for a living. They install above ground pools. Call your above ground pool store. Don't tell them what you're doing. Okay. Cause they want to sell you chemicals and that's why they're going to help you. I just got a brand new above ground pool. I didn't buy it from you. I'm sorry. Somebody gave it to me. Guy bought it. It was still in the box. He gave it to me. I need somebody to install it. Do you have an installer? And they'll recommend an installer 99% of the time. Because the number one thing, people go to above ground pool store, they buy the pool. They're like, it's easy to install. And they're like, I don't want to install it. And it's usually around five to 700 bucks to get it installed. So I, that's the approach I would take with that. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I enjoyed chatting with you guys as always. Appreciate the super chats that came in today. Uh, I missed mentioning the people that sent them, but thank you if you did. I always appreciate that. And, uh, I will catch you guys on Monday with another edition of the show. You pull yourself up, they keep bringing you down. Are they gonna bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way. A dollar down, a dollar a month. Better.